And open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to finish this message that we began last week. I'm not going to go back to those scriptures. I'm just going to summarize them. They're scriptures that you know well. We began to talk last week about really something we've been looking at for quite a while, which is examining what's really important. Coming to the end of a year, and that's a good time to do that. And one of the things people tend to do as they prepare for a, a new year or enter into a new year is go back and re-examine things, re-examine our lives, re-examine this last year and compare where we are this year to where we were last year, maybe financially, maybe health-wise, maybe your family's condition, whatever it may be. It's a good thing to do every once in a while to step back and examine yourselves. The Bible entreats us to do that, to check ourselves and see whether we're really in the faith or not. And, and, and to do that under the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, not with the enemy talking in your ear and telling you you're a failure, you're never going to amount to anything, but more to open our eyes to see where we really are. And it's a time for sorting out what's really important and, what we've, and, and whether we're really living that in our life because it's very easy in the process of life to get distracted and get our hearts off focused on the wrong things. And the Bible talks a lot about that. So we looked several weeks ago at <clears throat> what's really important ultimately is whether you're going to heaven or not, where you're going to spend eternity because that's where you're going to spend eternity. You're going to spend it either in heaven or in hell and you get to choose. And that choice is the most important choice you will ever make. And even if you've chosen heaven, it's not over then because you've got to choose how you're going to live in heaven and what that's going to be like because whatever that is, that's for eternity. So it's a matter of getting our priorities lined up with God's priorities. And we looked at that for several weeks from several different points of view. But last week we began to bring that focus over to this season, the Christmas season, to begin to look at, well, what's really important about Christmas? There's so many things, that, that pressures that are on us to get presents, get them wrapped, get the right present, make sure I covered everybody, all this pressure. And then, you know, uh, uh, there's just the time of year it is. It's, this is the shortest day of the year, so it's, it's not as light as much. And we haven't seen the sun for, I don't remember when I last saw the sun. Maybe it peaked at us a few days ago, but it seems like it's been a while. And all of that kind of begins to press in on you and, and it begins to can weigh you down so that instead of being a joyous time of year, it becomes an obligation. And when that happens, something's off. We've lost touch with something. And even if it's a joyous time of year, but it can be joyous for the wrong reasons. And so we were started last week to go back and look at what, what is the real significance of Christmas. We just read a Christmas story to the children, which really says it, but in very childlike, simplistic terms. And sometimes that's what it takes for us to get. So we began to look at last week Christmas from God's point of view. And we saw that in it, that, that we saw we read a little bit of the Christmas story. We read how God God sent his angel Gabriel to Mary and announced that what he was going to do is give his son to the earth and to be conceived and born in her, raised and raised by her. And then we looked and saw the fulfillment of that over, over in Luke. And then we went and looked in the Gospel of John, the beginning, where we see God's side of it which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And it goes on to say that all things were made by Him, and all things were made through Him, and He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. And we saw that before the earth was created, before the universe was created, there was God Himself, and then God birthed out of Him the Word, which is the full expression of Himself. We talked about Him as His Son, 
chip off the old block, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but that describes what it is. A son is an expression of his father. And so this word was the full expression of his father. And then we saw in verse 14, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took the full expression of himself and he gave him to man as a gift, as a gift of love because we were so desperately lost, not just lost, but did not have the power or the ability to even realize how lost we are. Do you realize it takes God's grace just to show you you need him? Because we're so self-deceived, we think we can work ourselves out of this ourselves. And it takes God's grace, his love to break through to us to see how much we need him, how lost we really were. And then we saw in John chapter Three, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We saw that that verse is not talking about the fact that God gave his son, but it's describing the extent to which God loves us. He loves us so much that he did not withhold his own son, that he gave us the very best, the most valuable, the most precious that he had because we were desperately lost, and that that is the message of Christmas. The reason we give gifts is because he, first of all, gave a gift to us. So we're going to pick up now in Ephesians chapter 2 because there's a verse here we didn't get to last week and that's very important, and then we're going to continue on with the other side of this. Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 1 talks about that God's blessings have been given to us. And then chapter 2, chapter 1 ends by talking about that how God displayed his power when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. You understand that, and of course this is not the season we're celebrating it, but in the Easter season we celebrate Christ's death, his crucifixion, his punishment, his humiliation, his crucifixion, his burial, but the most important part then is his resurrection from the dead. That God took a man that was dead and brought him to life. He was not only dead, he was dead in the place of the damned. The Bible says he descended into Hades. He would not leave, the prophecy was he would not leave his body to rot in corruption, which was hell. So in the very place of death, the seat of death, God brought him alive and raised him from the dead by a power that's called the power of the resurrection. And the end of chapter 1 talks about that God would, Paul's prayer was for the church at Ephesus, is that God would open their eyes so they would see a number of things. And the the third thing was that they would see the power that God displayed towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Over in Philippians chapter 3, Paul prays also that God would show him that he would know Christ and he would know the power of his resurrection. So God intends for us to experience and to know something that's the power of God that can take a being that is dead, spiritually dead, and bring them alive. And that's where we were. We were spiritually dead. Your body was alive, but you were spiritually dead over in Genesis where God warns them and says, look, if you eat of this tree in the middle of the garden that I'm telling you not to eat of, it says you will surely die. But in the Hebrew, it says in dying you will die. Well, Adam lived for 900 years later or something like that. Heaven earned some years later. So he obviously didn't physically die. What we think of death didn't happen to Adam then. 
But what God thinks of death happened to him immediately, which is spiritual separation from God. God is life. He is the source of life. All life, whether it's this physical life we live or it's spiritual life, all that emanates from Him. He is the source of life. And to be cut off from communication with that, to be cut off from a relationship with that, to be cut off from the source of that is death. And just as with physical death, there's no natural thing the medicine can do for you. Once someone is physically dead, the doctors cannot do anything longer because all their efforts ended when your body stopped because the only thing they can do is to help your body recover itself. But once it's dead, the ability of your body to recover anything is over. It's gone. And the Bible tells us that that physical death occurs because our spirit is removed. Because the source of your physical life is the animation that comes from your spirit that's in you. But if that spirit is not connected to God, it is spiritually dead. Which means it has no connection with God. No communication with God outside of something supernatural. And no life force from God flowing in it or through it. And so when God told Adam that in dying you will die, he was talking about that spiritual death first. And eventually, the physical death that caught up with his physical body, then his physical body died, and we've all been dying since that. And so when Paul writes here in the first chapter about the power of the resurrection, then in chapter 2, he talks about us. He says, and you also, were, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Walking according to the course of this world under the leadership of the, of, the, of, the, of the principalities and powers of darkness among whom you still walked in the lust of our flesh. That's where we were. We could not get ourselves out of that. The very best day you ever had didn't even begin to budge in reaching towards God. We were without hope, says over in chapter 2 later on, and without God in this world. And that's where chapter, verse 3 ends. And we're going to pick up in verse 4. But God. But God. We had nothing to offer Him. Not our good intentions. Not our good deeds. Not our faithfulness in church. Not our generosity in giving. None of those things did we have that we could offer to God that could make us alive. We had no value to Him. Nothing we could do to Him, for Him. In fact, we were a liability to Him. Deserving of utter damnation from God's perspective. So we have trouble relating to that because we look at ourselves by comparing ourselves with ourselves. And so we say, well, you know, I may not be perfect. I'm just human, we use the term. You know, we're human. And we are. And my, but I'm trying. My good intentions are there. You don't understand. They don't count. Hell is filled with people with good intentions. So God, so the Bible says God looks at the heart, not at the outer man. That's not talking about this. Our good heart, our good intentions, our best efforts aren't enough. 
They don't begin to be enough. Say, Pastor, this isn't good news. Oh, yes, it is. That's where we were. And that's where we are without Christ. On that Christmas night, that's where the whole world was in darkness. Spiritual darkness. The only hope were some prophecies that the God of creation would be merciful and send a deliverer in some form. But there was no hope but God. But God. But God. Oh, the power of those two words. But God. But God. But God. We were dead without hope. But God. We were worthless. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. See, this is where our minds struggle. Because we either think, yeah, there's something in me deserving of that love, so that's why God loves me. Or we think, I'm such a piece of trash, there's no way God can love me, so he doesn't. God does not love you because you're lovable. And he does not refuse to love you because you're unlovable. In fact, you have nothing to do with God's loving you. Nothing. You're not an element or consideration in God's loving you. He loves you because He is love. It's His nature. It's to His glory. It's to His credit that He loves you. It's a complete reflection on who God is and what God's like that He loves us. Over further on in chapter 2, we're not going to get a chance to turn there, but it says in the ages to come, God's going to display us as trophies of His grace. He's going to present us and display us before the angelic forces, not of how faithful we were, but we're proof of how gracious and how merciful and how loving God is. So we're not here to live up to our best and do our best so we can stand before God and go, No, God sees through. He sees. Whoo, he sees what's really going on inside. God says, I'm going to show that to the angelic host, and then I'm going to show how, what love does. Because you understand, the Bible teaches us that before this earth was ever created, before you and I were ever created, that there was a battle in heaven. I've never taught this before. There was a battle in heaven where the, the one, the, the, one of the archangels, most likely, although it doesn't identify with him, named Lucifer, the son of light, most likely in charge of worship at the throne of God, an exalted position, 
began to take his eyes off of God as the source of his beauty and began to look at himself and say, whew, not only do I deserve to be here, but I deserve to sit next to him like the Most High. And as a result of that pride and that ambition, he led a revolt in heaven in which one-third of the angels followed him. So what they sought after and what he led was he exalted his own beauty, he exalted himself, and he exalted pride over God. And what God's going to do is display you and me in heaven to show what triumphed in the end wasn't pride and ambition. What triumphed in the end was his love and his mercy and his grace. And he's going to use as witnesses, as exhibits of how merciful and how graceful he has been, you and me. Wow. So he loves us not because we're lovable. He loves us because that's his nature. A way we can kind of relate to that is if you've ever been a parent and you, this little child is now put into your arms. I mean, let's just stop and think about it. And you just, you know, I told you about the father last week that just fell in love with this little boy and was going around showing to everybody. That little baby, let's talk, let's talk practically here for a minute. What can he do for you? Nothing. In fact, he's nothing but an obligation. They tell you ahead of time what it's going to cost to raise them. I mean, if you knew that ahead of time, you probably wouldn't have had them. I'm just talking about money, let alone tears and heartbreak and all the rest of that stuff. But it's a little baby. This little baby. The only relationship it has with you is it's hungry and cries. And then it processes that food and needs to be cleaned. That's it. It's nothing but work. I know, we had two at one time. And you don't sleep. You don't even get to eat much because they're nothing but 100% need. And if they don't get what they need, they cry and scream at 1 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning when you want to sleep because you were up all night last night. They can't do anything for you. And yet we, (laughs) why? Because we love them. Love, that kind of love, a parent's love, isn't based on what that child can do for me. It's based on the fact that that child came from me. And in some cases, it didn't even come from you. It's adopted, and it's still, I love that child. The Bible tells us how much more. How much more? How much more does your Father in heaven love you? If he feeds the birds of the air so that they don't ever worry about food, and he clothes the grass of the field with the beautiful flowers in spring and the different times of the year, the foliage. If he does all that and it's here today and gone tomorrow, how much more? How much more does he love you and take care of you? But God. 
I love the amplified translation of this verse. But God, who being rich in mercy, in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. He made you alive. You didn't do anything to climb out of the grave. He made you alive when you came to Christ. Wow. Wow. For God so loved you and me. All right. Say, well, I'm not really experiencing all of that and, 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 and I'm struggling with it. Well, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Next book over. We're talking about the Christmas spirit. The Christmas spirit is not eggnog and cookies. It's not Christmas trees and presents. It's not the music. Those are part of enjoying it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what we talked about last week is the problem is when the world at this particular time of year, where they even have declared truces in the past in wars, We've looked at why. What is there about this Christmas spirit that affects people this time of year? What we talked about is that they're looking for something. There's something in their heart that they're looking for that's a, that's a need that we're looking for that we're trying to satisfy with Christmas trees and parties and cookies and stories about Christmas and Santa Claus and all that stuff. We're look, the world's looking for something. We saw last week as the danger is if you think it's in all those things, even if you get a momentary amount of pleasure or, or relief or satisfaction, it will not last because the day after Christmas comes. And now what? And there's often a letdown because those things don't ever satisfy. They're here to represent what God did, which is the only thing that satisfies, is the gift of His love in his son. Philippians chapter 2, for God has so loved us that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish. We've talked about God's side, what God has done. He's given the very best he has for you and me. But look at verse 5. But let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. We talked about that before. That's John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. So when God gave His Son, He was with Him, and He was fully God. And not only did God give the Son, but the Son had to agree to come. And so Philippians 2 is talking about that. The Son agreed to come as the gift that God gave. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What that's saying is he had a right to consider himself equal with God. Why did he have that right? Because he was equal with God. Who did not consider it robbery to say that he was equal with God. Look what it says here. Verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation. What that really says in the Greek is he emptied himself of his privileges. Think about this a second. And it's hard for us to imagine that this second person of the Godhead, in all his glory and majesty, 
The Bible tells us elsewhere that all things that were created were created through Him, by Him, through Him, and for Him. He had all the power of the Father. He had all the glory of the Father because He was the full expression of the Father. The majesty, the honor, the splendor, which you and I can't begin to imagine. And this verse says, He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself of that glory. He set it aside. He didn't destroy it. He just set aside His privileges, His glory, His majesty, all the accompaniments and all the trappings that came with His position. He laid it aside and humbled Himself to take on flesh. Now the other side of this is in John 17 when Jesus is praying and says to the Father, I've finished what you sent me to do. Restore to me the glory that I had before I came here. So what he sets aside when his assignment is done, he's asking to have it restored. That means the whole time he was on the earth, he was not walking in the power, he was not walking in the privileges, he was not walking in the authority that he had as the second person of the Godhead. You say, well, how did he do all that? The key was, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. And we may talk a little bit more of that on Wednesday night. So he lays aside, we see when he was born, in spite of all the pictures you may have seen in the wonderful, beautiful Renaissance paintings, when he was the little baby in the manger, he didn't have a halo around his head. And there wasn't a light shining out of the place unless there were candles burning in there. Because unless God revealed through the angels or through another summer source, the other people thought he was just a baby born. There was nothing extraordinary that happened. There was no great parade. There was no news service out there reporting it. There were just those that God chose to tell. The poorest and the richest, whoever was open, God chose to announce what he had done. And he grows up just like you and I grew up. He had to learn who he was. He has to learn to walk. He has to learn, in his case, carpentry skills from, his, from Joseph. He has to learn things. The Bible says he grew in learning and understanding. To grow in something means you go beyond where you were before. You increase. He didn't take any shortcuts. He laid all that aside to take on flesh. And being made of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given to him name that's above every name. But notice verse 5. Let us, this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's talking to the church here, people that have come to Christ and received Him. He said, we are to have the same mind, the same attitude, the same willingness that Jesus had. Go to John 13. 
Jesus is preparing his disciples that he's leaving. He's going to be turning this whole thing over to them as he goes to the cross, is raised from the dead. And he's preparing them for this. And before he gets into his discussion in John 14, 15, and 16, he celebrates Passover meal with them, the last Passover meal that he had with them. And when they were finished eating, Jesus gets up and takes off his outer garment and wraps a towel around him and starts washing his feet. And what that's all about is that in those days, the, because the streets weren't, most of them weren't paved and the ones that were paved were dusty and they wore sandals so their feet were open, that you, in the course of walking around during the day, your feet would get dusty and dirty regardless of whether you'd taken a bath in the morning or not. And when you entered someone's house, their lowest slave in the house was assigned the most menial task, which was to come to greet when the master or whoever great greeted the guests as they came in, there was a bowl of water there and a servant would come over and he, while you're talking to whoever's meeting you, you're not even paying attention to them. They take your sandal off, they wash your feet with that water, dry it with a towel, clean your sandals and put your sandals back on your feet. And it's so menial, so low that I'm sure people didn't even pay much attention to it. It was just kind of assumed. The problem here, this was a rented room. This wasn't somebody's house. Because it was a rented room, the landlord didn't provide a servant with it. But there was a basin there and water and a towel. And they all knew the custom. And so somewhere during this meal, I'm sure it's going through their minds, uh, they, didn't, you know, they obviously didn't wash their own feet. And they're kind of conscious that this has never been done and, they're sort of, and realize they're not sitting at a table like you and I do with our feet under the table. The tables were about that high off the ground and they lay on pillows so your feet, let's put it this way, you could tell without looking very far that your neighbor hadn't washed his feet. And after the meal, Jesus gets up. And I'm sure whenever he got up, their eyes, they may have been talking to each other, but their eyes kind of followed him. What's he going to do? And he goes around to wherever this basin was. He takes his outer garment off. He takes the towel, wraps it around him, and he goes over. Takes their sandals off and begins to wash their feet. Now, we've been talking about how far down he came. That in, in heaven, he laid aside his glory. Remember, everything was created through him. Even the towel and the water and the dirt that's on their feet. And he laid that all aside. In the enormity, emptying, humbling of himself to just take on flesh, the limitations of flesh, let alone as a baby. And now, having gone through all the misunderstandings, knowing what was facing him, he humbles himself even more. And he kneels down, and he washes their feet. And when he finishes... He says to them, you call me Lord. Well, let's go over. Take a look at this. Verse 12. So when he'd washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? 
you call me teacher and Lord, and, and you say, well, for so I am. If I'm then your Lord and your teacher, your rabbi, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Most assuredly, I say to you that a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. He was giving them a visual demonstration of what he was about to do on the cross. Here he was God who created. Think about it. He created the cross on which he was about to be nailed. He created the nails. No, not directly, but they came because of his creation. He created the nails. The very men that nailed him to the cross, he created them. Their life came from him. And he was doing it for them. He was showing his disciples that he came. Yes, I'm Lord. I am the Lord of all creation. Yes, I am that. But as Lord, I have humbled myself, laid aside my rights and privileges so that I could meet your need. If I did that for you, how can you not go and do that for one another? So we're talking about the Christmas spirit, which is receiving, re- enjoying, appreciating, learning more about, accepting more how much God loves me. But when I do that, then there's another side to that. Because now I've got to begin to give what I've been given. Over in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go forth. Up until that time, he's been praying for this fact in sac- Chapter uh, 9 ends with saying he went throughout all Galilee uh, and healing everyone that came to him, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then it says he looked out over the multitude and saw that they they were lost. They were sheep without a shepherd. And he cried out and says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers out into the harvest. And right after that, chapter 10 begins by commissioning 10 of the men that followed him to be his disciples. And then he sends them out to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. And then he says at the end of that verse, freely you have received, freely give. And there's a connection between receiving and giving. You can't give something that you haven't received, but you can't hold on to something you've received if you then don't turn and give it. And that's what we're going to talk about. Well, that's what we've been talking about. So let's go over to 1 John chapter 4. The Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love. His testimony is that he refers to himself as as the disciple that Jesus loved which is interesting because Peter kept having the attitude that he was the disciple that loved Jesus. But when the push came to shove, I mean when the crisis came, Peter's the one that denied him. John was at the foot of the cross with Jesus, his mother, and with Mary Magdalene. So it isn't your confidence in how much you love him. 
It's your knowledge and how much he loves you that brings it through. So John was the apostle of love. He's the one that in this scene of the Last Supper, he's the one with his head lying on Jesus' chest. I mean, there's a closeness there. There's a knowledge there. You understand Jesus had different groups. He had the huge multitude that followed him. Then there was the 70, which was still, they were disciples of his. And, and we don't know a whole lot about them, but we know that in Luke chapter 10, he commissions them and sends them specifically out. In chapter 9, he commissioned the 10 and sent them out, the 12, excuse me. And now in this scene, he's meeting with the inner 12. But among those, he had three that were closer to him, Peter, James, and John. And that of the three, there was a special intimacy with John. So John had a knowledge of Jesus at a different level, a knowledge of his love, a personal knowledge of it at a different level, and recognized that he was, I'm the one that Jesus loves. By the way, you're one of the ones that Jesus loves. You just need to see yourself that way. Instead of being the one that loves Jesus, you're the one that Jesus loves, and that's why you can love Jesus. So I share that with you because John has an insight into this love that we need to see. So we're going to look in 1 John chapter 4. There's so much we could do, but we're going to start in verse 7. Beloved, that's a good start right there. He's addressing people that he knows are loved. By, it's interesting to break that word down, beloved. It sounds like a commandment. Be loved. Be loved. Beloved. Let us love one another. For love is of God, or comes from God, or is out of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now you need to understand that the Bible has... Three basic words for love. There are five total ones. But there are two crucial ones where we need to understand the difference. That in English are all translated love. One is the Greek word phileo, from which we get Philadelphia, which is city of brotherly love. Not necessarily that it always acts that way, but that's the name of the city. Phileo is a brotherly type of love. It's a friendship. It's loving you because I'm fond of you, loving you because there's something we have in common. There's, you know, ever be people just get a connection with them and say, wow, I just clicked when I met them. And so you're drawn to them. That's good love. It's a phileo love. It's the best human type of love there is. But there's a word agape. Agape, which is a type of love that is sacrificial. It's the type of love we were talking about earlier that loves not because there's anything lovable about the person you love or the thing you love. You love because that's what you can't help yourself but love them. It's just your nature. It's love that's willing to give everything whether it gets anything back or not. You know you're not walking in that when you say somebody, you know what, I've been doing things for them and they never appreciate it. That means I was not walking in agape love. If you want a description of how it acts, you look in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take a wrong into account. Love does not, does not hold on to grievances. Love believes the best, thinks the best. That's what agape love is like. So when John is talking about love... That's the love he's talking about. Jesus defined it for us, really. He said, this is my commandment. Notice not a suggestion. 
not this is a good principle that if you do it, you'll be blessed. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And then he defines it, as I have loved you. And he shared that with them. He gave that commandment and standard right before he went to the cross. Think of that. The very men that are beating him, beyond recognition, the very soldiers that are driving the nails into his hands, the very religious people that are around him mocking him, saying, if you really are the Son of God, come down off that cross. He was doing it for them. What kind of love would do that? The same kind of love that gave his Son for you and me. And now he says, Beloved, let us agape one another. Let us love one another. For this kind of love is of God. There's no other place to get it from. And everyone who loves with this type of love, two things, is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That Notice it didn't say is not born of God. Because I believe that you can't really know this love until you are born of God. So it starts by being born of God, being born again. And once you're born again, God births His nature in you. And now it's a process of learning that love that God has for you, which is what we're talking about. But part of the way of learning it is beginning to give away what you've learned, beginning to exercise, beginning to share what you've learned. And the more you share it, the more you experience it, and the more it flows. We'll talk about that in a minute. For everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, verse 8, but he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the measure of how well you know God, this is what the Bible says. This isn't theology. The measure of how well you know God is not how many scriptures you know. It's not how much you give. It's not how faithful you are in church. It's not, those are all good things. It's not what you're doing for God. It's none of those things. The measure, the Bible says, of how much I know God is how much I love others. Because God is love. To abide in Him is to abide in love, and it's the other way around. To abide in love is to abide in God. So we cannot receive this love and enjoy this love and grow in this love if we just keep it to ourselves. In order to keep it, you have to give it. It's the opposite of the way the world thinks. The world thinks in order to keep something, you've got to hold on to it and not give it, because if you give it, you won't get any more. A couple of years ago, we taught a series on the upside-down kingdom, that the world's principles are just the opposite of the principles of the world, of of the kingdom of God. All right, let's read on. Verse 9, In this is the love of God manifested towards us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment or the satisfaction of our sins. So love is initiated by God. None of us have come to God as, I just love you so much and now you're going to love me back. No. The only reason we can love God is because He first loved us. 
And the source of the love that we have to give to Him, just as the source of our finances that we give to Him, came from Him to begin with. In the same way, the love we have to give back to Him is the love we've received from Him to begin with. He is the source of love. We cannot work it up, make it up. Phileo love you can, but agape love you can't. Because it goes against our flesh's nature. It's sacrificial. I don't like the word sacrifice. Sacrifice implies pain. Letting go of something I want or need. But sacrifice says, I value you more than what I'm getting from this thing I'm holding on to. You're more valuable to me than this money. You're more valuable to me than this time. You're more valuable to me. And that's what God said towards you. You're more valuable to me, listen, than my son. Love is of God. Love is of God, from God, comes out of God. In this is love, verse 10. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of sin. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us. God's able to live in us as we love one another. We begin to experience and know His love. We begin to experience and know what God's like as we begin to love one another. And we have to do that by faith because so often it doesn't feel like that love's in there until we begin to give it. And I've found that the times I experience that love the most is when I have to give it to somebody that looks like they deserve it the least. Somebody does something nice for you and you do something. I love that person because they always smile at me and they bless me. They send me cards, you know, and they remember my birthday. I just love them. That's not agape love. It's good. It's when we do what Jesus says in John chapter 6, when we love our enemies. I can be fond of them. You know, well, you know, or pray for those that despitefully use you. God, I'm praying for them. Would you please give them what they deserve? No, that's not what he's talking about. Lord, open their eyes to see how wretched they are, how despised they are, how filthy they are. Open their eyes. No, 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 no. Pray for those who despitefully use you, that God would bless them. Uh-huh. No way. That's not justice. Lord, give them what they deserve. Oh, wait a minute. If they get what they deserve. I don't want what I deserve. There's a flow to this love that we bottle up when we don't give away. All right. Verse 13, we know by this that we abide in Him because He is in us, because He has given us of our spirit. So the proof that we belong to Him is His Spirit's in us. We've seen and testified that the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses Jesus as the Son of God, God abides in Him. Let's go down. 
Verse 16. We've known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. And love has been perfected or completed among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as He is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love. If you want to get rid of fear in your life, start giving that love away. There's no fear in love, but perfected love, completed love, casts out fear because fear involves torment. It's the torment of judgment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or complete in love. We love him because he first says he loved us. If someone says, well, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love the, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The nature of love is that we can only enjoy it by sharing it. It's like electricity. Electricity only has power as it flows through the wires and flows to the toaster or the hair dryer or whatever it flows. As long as it's not being used, it lays in the wires dormant and in the walls. And the life of God and the power of God and the anointing of God, although we're children of God, lies dormant in us unless it's given away and allows God to flow through us. But with God, the more He flows through you, the more of Him you get to experience. You can't outgive God. The more you give away, that's why it says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because the more you give of that love, especially when you don't want to and it feels like you can't or you shouldn't, the more you give of that, the more God's able to reveal Himself to you as He flows through you. There's an expression that I learned years ago. It's that love is not really love until it's given away. Love is not really love until it's given away away. And it's out there. No, actually, it's in you. It's residing in you and residing in me right now. The life of God is bound up, and we live most of our time so far beneath that. We live an ordinary life dealing with issues with ordinary ability. When it residing in us right now, sitting in your blue seat, when you leave here, wherever you go, when you get up tomorrow and go to work, wherever it is, that life, that same life, is in you, waiting to be released. And there's around us every day opportunities to do that as the Spirit of God directs. The second thing I wanted to share with you out of that is that what comes across to me is God's, God didn't just love us with an emotion. He didn't just sit in heaven and look down on us and say, oh, I love them so much. Oh, my heart just overflows with love for them. No, he acted on who he loved. He acted on it. And it's in the acting on it, in the sharing something. Because God loved us first before he pro proclaimed the gospel to us. And it's his love for them that we are here to communicate. And that's not just what Christmas is about. That's the only reason the church is here.